I want to uh, share with you a little bit on, on this series that we're on, on That'll Preach. Pastor Jason and Angie are gone this weekend. They're, they're uh, doing a um, family camp at Laity Lodge. And a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Jason came to me and he said, hey, can you cover Sunday the 15th? Uh, we're in the middle of this hymn series and I'll give you the hymn. And uh, I said, yeah, sure, absolutely. I'd be honored to be able to do that. That'd be fantastic. Uh, which hymn do you have in mind? And he said, it's scheduled for great is thy faithfulness. And I said, it's anointed because it's one of my favorite songs. And it's also where God has really been teaching us as a family this last year about his faithfulness and his steadfastness. And so I said, this is perfect. I mean, this is going to be great. And so week one, we do Amazing Grace, and he has this fantastic video, and you hear all the stuff that's going on in this story, and, you know, a messed up man, and all this great dynamics of he writes this song, and you're thinking, yeah, that's great. And then last week, you hear this horrible tragedy, and a man sits down in the middle of his cabin and begins to pin this letter as well with my soul after going over the place where his daughters were, were killed in a boating accident. And, and I'm thinking, yes, it's going to be another dynamic story on great is thy faithfulness and I found a man that had a great story but it wasn't quite as magnificent as the other two so I thought man how are we going to handle this I started researching there's got to be more to this guy than just a neat guy that wrote a story so let me tell you a little bit about Thomas Chisholm he grew up a very very poor man and had very significant significant health issues his entire life he was always fighting fatigue. He was always fighting this, this debilitating um, issue with his lungs. And they didn't think he was going to make it out of his, uh, his few years, his early years. They didn't think he'd make it out of his teenage years. And every doctor that they went to said, I, I just don't think he's going to make it much longer. And God continued to restore his health enough that he could work and make money to pay off all the debts that he had been in bed for three or four months with an illness. And he would work. And then when he'd be healthy enough, he'd go on a mission trip and just a, a man that just struggled every day in his physical health. And at age 27, he came to Christ and he found great comfort in the scriptures and the fact that God was faithful to him to strengthen him in times of illness and make provision for him for his needs. His favorite passage was Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. And so out of this, he writes this hymn. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. While on mission trips, Thomas would often write a poem about his experience and what God was doing. And he would send that back to some different friends at different times. And one man in particular, a guy named William Rhinom, that he had a relationship with that was a kind of an unknown musician and writer. And so he would send his poems to him, and this particular poem really struck William in a mighty way. And he said, you know what, I'm going to put music to this, and, and I work for a publishing company. I bet I can get it in the next hymnal. And so he did that. In 1923, it got published. Uh, went around for quite a few years without really being recognized as a significant hymn until one day in Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, one of the main professors who was in charge of chapel heard that song, and he said, I love that song. And so it became the unofficial song of Moody Bible Institute. So thousands of young men that were trained in ministry heard that song in chapel multiple times in a year and were sent out around the world. It became more popular in George Beverly Shays in 1945, one of the most famous musicians that worked with Billy Graham. And this famous huge voice that sang all these hymns, falls in love with the song and begins to sing it at Billy Graham Crusades in the mid-40s. And next thing you know, it's one of the most popular hymns in America. Great is thy faithfulness. It's about a man that struggled through his very early years and all of his life physically. But Thomas Chisholm died in 1960 at the age of 94. 
And all of his days, he kept writing poetry about the goodness of God and through scripture, over 1,200 poems, several dozen hymns, several that you may know. I didn't know this one, Oh, Be Like Thee. And it's, this language doesn't make sense to me because, you know, the old English. Uh, but uh, Living for Jesus, he wrote several things that people know kind of in different regions. He's not famous for writing hymns, but he wrote one of the great hymns of the faith. As a man that struggled on a daily basis to be able to walk and to take a breath, he found God's faithfulness and provision, even in his illness, to sustain him another day. And he wrote this song that we so uh, often sing in the tradition of our faith of what a great God he is and his faithfulness. One of the things that is important out of this Lamentations chapter 3 passage, Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah and then most likely wrote Lamentations, almost everyone agrees Uh, Jeremiah was brokenhearted over the destruction, the captivity, and then the destruction of of Jerusalem. And in that process, he just goes through the first chapters of Lamentations, and he's lamenting. He's just saying out loud how sorry he is for what Israel has gone through and what Jerusalem did, or what happened to Jerusalem, and the pain that that inflicted in his own soul. In verse 19, he says, Lamentations 3, 19, he says, I remember my affliction and my wondering." the bitterness and the gall, I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Verse 21, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. You know, one of the things that we need in faithfulness is we need to understand that you and I are supposed to be faithful, but when things of this world are not faithful, God himself is, and he always is. And we need to have that rock, that anchor. Psalms 89, one and two says this, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands forever, that you establish your faithfulness in heaven itself. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God says, no temptation has seized us except what is common to man. Our God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will always provide a way out so that you can stand under it. Faithfulness is one of the things that we as human beings long for. We expect it in the people around us. We really think it's a necessity of life, that you can have faith in someone, that someone can say they're going to do something and they come through with that. We all long to have friends like that. Unfortunately, we could do a show of hands. All of us have probably been betrayed by some friendship or relationship at some time. Some employer that promised us things and then didn't deliver and actually cut the legs out from under us. A, a relationship that said, this is going in the right direction, then one day they changed their mind. Or someone that said, I'll be there for you, and when times are tough, they don't show up. We've all been disappointed in relationships when people have not been faithful and followed through. Some of you in this room might be going through some trouble where things are just seem to be overwhelming, unbearable. The weight is so heavy upon your infrastructure of your life, you feel like you're about to collapse in a series of stories of a building that are going to collapse on top of each other. Because you have been betrayed, you have been let down, you have been disappointed, you have been left to stand alone when you needed to have someone stand with you. And this passage in Corinthians is here to tell us 
that that pressure that we're under, those trials, those temptations, those difficulties, God will not let you have more than you can handle. We've heard this, but I know for me in times of despair, I'm thinking, that's a great statement, but are you kidding me? I'm being crushed here. And God is saying, you're not being completely dismantled. It may be very difficult, but I am going to help you in this time. One of the things about exercise and nutrition is when you're working out with weights or doing strenuous activity, you're actually stressing your body in order for it to toughen up. I remember we had a a boot camp class that met at our church in the Dallas area several years ago, and one of our preschool ministers uh, got really excited, and she joined, and she said, yeah, I'm going to do it. And that first day, they ran a mile. She had stress fractures in both of her shins. She was unable to barely walk for several weeks. And the coach was like, oh, you should have told me you haven't run in 11 years. Well, I didn't really know that that was something that should have been checked. Maybe that should have been a question, she says. But because she didn't have the stress on her legs, running on a pavement parking lot was not a good thing for her. But if she will walk and then begin to add a little bit more stress, the bones build up density and they can handle that. Same thing in our lives. God wants us to be put under pressure and stress to make us stronger. And sometimes we feel like he's going to kill us before he makes us stronger. But let me share with you a few things out of the Bible. The book of Daniel, or the story of Daniel, is a great illustration. Here's Daniel, a godly young man that's been stolen from his country and brought to another country. This is not his homeland, but he's being raised up into kind of royalty if he'll perform properly and do the right things. And Daniel is a good young man. And then they set this decree that you must bow down to the idol or you will be in opposition of the king. And Daniel says, I will not bow to the idol. And so he breaks the law. And the king, even though the king likes him, he says, he'll have to go in the lion's den. He actually says, I'm sorry we have to do it, Daniel, but this is what you the circumstances that you've got yourself into. So they open up the pit to the lion's den. They're roaming around in there. They normally have not eaten in a long time. Whatever they throw in there, they're going to devour. Daniel gets put in there, no response. They say, well, maybe the lions are shy and they don't want to be seen with everybody watching. So they, they put the cover back on and they leave and they come back the next day to see if there's even bones left in there. And instead they open it and Daniel is probably sitting on the ground, maybe with his legs crossed and he's petting the lion's mane. And he's named them all Fluffy and Biff and Skip and whatever. I don't know what he's done, but he obviously had had a protection from God that they were not going to attack and eat him. Then you've got Joseph, who is a great story of the Old Testament. Here's a young man, the one that had the multicolored coat, and he was the chosen one of the the brothers, and and pompous, arrogant little guy at times, and kind of told his brothers that, hey, I'm going to be big and famous, and they're like, oh, you know, they want to knock him out, and they get so frustrated one time on a trip, they decide they're going to throw him into a pit, and they don't know what to do with him. They decide it's not right to leave him in the pit and let him die, so let's sell him to some slave traders as they're passing by. So they took the jacket and they tore it and they put some blood on it and told the dad that he was dead and they sold him to some slave traders. Well, God worked out miraculous ways where he got Joseph into Egypt. He gets Joseph um, into a situation that he's beginning to get more power and more authority and then Potiphar's wife messes around and and Joseph says no, and he gets thrown into prison, and then God gives him the ability to do some things, and he's going to get out, and then the door shuts, and he stays in prison for more years, and it's just this crazy battle, and eventually God gives him the ability to interpret dreams so that Pharaoh's dreams can be interpreted, and Joseph is able to do that. He rises to a prominent position. Eventually, Pharaoh puts him the man in charge of all the land under him in such a way that when drought comes to his brothers and his father's land, they have to come to Egypt for food in order to survive. And Joseph is the man that gives the authority to whoever gets food in order to save his family later on. 
he went through a horrible time in his life, but God exalted him to a high position. But I want to be balanced here because it doesn't always turn out that good. The disciples were very, very devoted, very faithful, very consistent in what they wanted to do. And all of them, except for John, who was exiled to an island, were all executed very hostily, very painfully. But given a choice, deny Christ and walk away or you will die today. And they all chose death. So God doesn't always rescue everybody out of the situation and put them in a place like Joseph. Sometimes our testing is to see if we're really seriously committed to what we say we believe. Jesus is a great example. Here's a guy that didn't want to go to the cross. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, and he is praying, oh, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass by me, is there any other way to restore what you're trying to restore than for me to be hung on the cross and humiliated and painfully executed? If there is, God, would you please open that way? And God says, that is the way that it must be. Even Jesus was trying to find a way out from underneath the pressure. And God's fulfillment was for Jesus to be on that cross. The thing that we need to always remember is that God has a plan. We've got a good friend that's a kind of a legendary band director in the state of Texas. And he told me a story one time that he understands that God can see everything at one time. Time and space, everyone. He's all, always, always present everywhere. He knows everything And so therefore, he makes decisions with all the pieces in time and space in play at one time. Like a band director that's going to orchestrate a great halftime show, he doesn't stand on the 50-yard line at the center of the field and watch what's going on and tell students where to go. He pulls himself back either to a practice tower or into a press box, and he orchestrates. He calls out with a microphone or with a radio down to somebody with a microphone. He tells them what to do and how to move them around to get the performance to go right. God is not performing us like a band director manipulating kids, but God is orchestrating everything for our good. The one thing we know is God is for us. He's not against us. He's not trying to make things hard on us. He's not trying to to punish us. He's not trying to make things more difficult. He's trying to allow the circumstances of the world to be under such control that we can still handle it and be more like him. Job is a great story of the Old Testament. Job is a man that had everything going in the right directions. If you read Job, the first couple chapters, Job is on fire. Not literally, but everything he does works. Every business deal prospers. His animals are multiplying at an unusual rate. His house is a giant mansion. His kids are thriving. His servants love to work for him. He's in a great place. And the Bible tells us that Satan and God have have a discussion. And in this conversation... Satan says, the only reason he loves you is because you're giving him everything. He's prosperous. Of course he'll love you when you give him everything. And God gives very specific permission to Satan. You may sift my servant, Job. You cannot touch him physically, but you can take everything else from him. And in one day, he loses all of his livestock. He loses all of his children. He loses his house. He loses everything in different circumstances. And it's all gone. And then God says, and and he still hasn't turned everything over. And God says, you can even touch his body physically. And so Satan inflicts him with a horrible disease, a skin irritation that's just painful and agonizing. And he says, now is he going to continue to praise you? And Job sat on a trash pile with his buddies and discussed. His wife came to him and said, Job, curse God and die. What kind of God would do this for you? 
What would he do to give you everything and then take it all away and leave you in agony? And Job is not ready to throw in the towel, but he doesn't have the answers. And he begins to sit there for days and his buddies are asking questions. Why would God do this? Maybe it's sin. Maybe it's something you did. And all this stuff transpires. And eventually what Job gets to is he says, God, I want to ask you a question. Why would you do this to me? Why did all this happen? And God doesn't answer his question. God asks him questions. Job, did you put the sun in place? Do you hold the stars in their orbit? Do you cause the earth to rotate on this perfect axis to have everything in life the way it's supposed to in this ecosystem? Job, do you do those things? No, God, I do not. Well, I do. And I work all things for good for those who love me and are called to my purpose. And Job transforms into a man that says, I don't know why and I can't explain it, but I will still be faithful to this God. And at the end of the chapter, God doubles everything that Job had before. He is rewarded for his faithfulness in the midst of the worst disaster you could imagine. It's tough. Why do we desire so bad? Why is it as humans we long for someone and and people to be faithful? Because that's the basic nature of what we believe in. We believe that people should be faithful. We believe that people should follow through when they promise something. We believe that when the chips are down, the people that really care are going to show up. The dictionary defines faithfulness like this. Faithfulness is a noun. Uh, It means to be full of faith, trustful, not simply trustworthy, but trustful. It can be trusted. You can count on that every time. Some synonyms that that I, I wrote down were true, devoted, staunch, constant. The idea of loyalty, it implies a quality of stability or dependability and devotion. This faithful um, attribute it implies long-continued and steadfast fidelity to whatever is what you're bound to or pledged to. This constant idea of faithfulness is this suggestion of firmness and this steadfast attachment, this constant affection. Some of you were raised in homes where it was a war zone. You don't know what trustworthiness is because it was never demonstrated for you in your home. One of the most basic things that we know in child development between birth and about 18 months is the idea that kids are going to learn trust or mistrust. They're going to get one of these two coming out of the home. Trust is every time that my mom or dad or caretaker says they're going to do something, they do it. And every time that I have a need, they attempt to meet it. Mistrust is I never know what's coming at me. Now, obviously, an 18-month-old can't consciously express this. So I say this all the time in parenting. If you're a brand-new parent, you need to start practicing separation from your child. From early on, the first few weeks, leave them and go somewhere. You have to come back, but leave them and go away because you're teaching them that you come back every time. That's a very important part of trust. If they don't know that you're coming back, the time that you do leave, they have nothing to base it on. So we are innately designed to know how to trust, but we live in a world that is full of distrust and untrustworthy people. And so it makes it very difficult. If you've ever been around somebody that's been unfaithful in a friendship or maybe even in a marriage relationship or or in in your family, it just, it, it tears your heart apart. It makes you feel 
disvalued, un, un, unworthy. It's a horrible feeling. Nobody wants that. I want to share a little bit about the journey that the Kelly family's been on for a little over a year. Um, when, when Pastor Jason said, great is thy faithfulness, I thought, man, Amy and I and our family just went through 2014, what we called our journey of faith. You could easily call it our wilderness experience when we have left some place and we went in the middle of the desert, it seemed like at times. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about this because I think it's important how God has proven his faithfulness to us over and over and over. Um, Got to go back into 2013. I was the executive pastor of our church in the Dallas area. It's a fairly large church with quite a few staff members. And our pastor decided he was going to retire. And it was a little sooner than he would expected, but his health issues were going on. And so he decides to retire. And so as executive pastor, I went to our elders and I sat down with them and I said, listen, the first thing you need to know is I'm not desiring to be the next pastor. I, don't, I, I have no aspirations for that, no desire. That's not what I want to do. I feel like that the Lord is giving me these seven or eight things that are very, very important. And, and I want to know if you're going to agree with me and be in full agreement, this is where the church needs to head during this transition till we find our next pastor. That I would be responsible, that I would be the lead guy. I'm going to be in charge of this transition. And at the end of this, when our next pastor comes, I may need to leave the staff so that I can hand over the full mantle of responsibility to him so there's no challenge of the guy that's been in charge for the guy that's now in charge or be reassigned if that's what's necessary. But I just want you to know, I don't plan on being the pastor in any way, shape, or form, and I will not be the executive pastor when he gets here. I just feel like I'm supposed to do this in this journey. 100% agreement, no questions, yes. I ask for prayer. I ask for several things that we would be faithfully meeting together and go through this. That was in the spring of 2013. We have an interim that comes on board. We go through the rest of 2013, transitioning, looking for our next pastor, getting our search team together. And in January of 2014, I was blindsided in a meeting that there was a complete change of direction that the elders and the interim pastor had had a conversation that I was unaware of. And they were moving in a very different direction than what I felt like the Lord had told us. And so I was very confused. And so I was trying to have some meetings and I was calling these guys and, hey, let's have lunch or let's grab coffee or let's have a conversation or come to my house or I'll come to your house. And and, and there's just no connection. Just a couple of them met with me on very small occasions. And I began to think, what is going on? And I began to think, man, this isn't right. And so this kind of righteous indignation rises up inside of me. And, and I feel like the Lord has empowered me with all the knowledge and the things that I'd known through all the years in ministry. And I began to pick up my sword and my shield. And I said, man, I'm going to fight. I want to fight this thing because our sheep as a flock is at risk. And they need me to fight for them. I will not relinquish that the responsibility or abdicate my role of taking care of the sheep. I am the chief shepherd at this moment. They will not hurt these sheep. And I began to get riled up and I began to ask for meetings and they wouldn't do it. And the meeting in February comes and it's a complete obvious that it's 100% of them in a different direction than me. And I still felt like the Lord was saying fight. And just a couple days later, the Lord in prayer, prayer time said, Kyle, why are you fighting? Why are you readying yourself for battle? Why have you picked up the sword and the shield? You're, you're ready to go. Why are you doing that? And I was like, because I'm going to defend these sheep, Lord. And he said, did I tell you to fight? Uh, yeah, of course you did. You always want the shepherd to defend the sheep. And he said, maybe you're not the shepherd I picked for these sheep. I got this. And I began to think, what? I mean, why would I not? This is my role. What's going on? Very confused, confused why these guys that I consider to be good friends weren't meeting with me. And the Lord told me one day, he said, what if I were to ask you just to walk away right now 
You'll have no financial support, no insurance, no place to go. You're just going to step off. And I was like, okay, Lord, you know my faith is so great. Of course I would do that. But Amy's not going to really be ready for that. Because, you know, we need to have an income. We got a daughter about to graduate from high school. We need to be in our house. I mean, you know, we, we're really practical about things. And of course, the Lord's, I don't think I fully understand that you want it, but I know Amy's going to say no. So I went home that day and I said, hey, what would you say if the Lord told us to step away? And she said, well, he's been telling me for several weeks that that's what we need to do. So yes. All right, well, we need to pray about this. Because you're talking about giving up every ounce of security that we know anything about. And I can get a job. I can work at several places. I can do a lot of things. But really? Let's pray. And man, we began to pray and the Lord said, go. He kept telling us, I got this. I got this. And so we did not tell a single soul on this planet that we were going to resign until just a couple days before Amy shared with her very best friend. And she was going to come and kind of hang out with us during this time in case, you know, things were kind of weird and our kids needed somebody. So she's the only one on the planet that knew before we resigned. Except for our kids the night before, we sat down with them and we told them. And I said, guys, this is a big deal. Dads, the Lord, we're going to follow what the Lord said. And the Lord said just to resign and walk away. We're just going to turn in resignation and be gone. And I really felt like my kids were going to freak out. And they were like, okay, Dad, whatever we need to do. So God confirmed over and over. So it was time. We did it. We stepped away. And that very first week, a young lady that had been in our Sunday school class, she, uh, I can't remember if she called first or just came by, and she said, the Lord gave me a dream last night that I'm supposed to come and give you $1,000. And here's 10 $100 bills. I hope it helps. We were like, wow. And it's hard to take. When you've been in positions of giving your entire life, it's hard to take a gift. And so we were like, oh, okay, you know, that's emotional. We had a girl in our youth group that was a college student, didn't have any money. She brought us $500. And she said, somebody had given me this to go on a mission trip, and I've earned it back, and I was going to pay them back, but I'll owe them. I'm going to pay you. I want to give you guys $500. This is kind of a, kind of a minor note on a different side, but we have a, a large dog that's kind of a chocolate lab, and um, we need it someplace if we we're going to sell our house, where are we going to do with our dog? We, you know, we can't take him with us, and we were going to stay with some friends for a while. And uh, so this lady that had kept our dog before didn't know that we were in the ministry and certainly didn't know that I'd left my job and um, didn't know any of the facts. And so Amy had kind of talked to her and normally it's 10 bucks a day, which is a great deal for a full-size dog. And she said, is there any way that maybe we could do it a little bit cheaper? And she said, yeah, I'll do it for $7 a day. And you go, okay, we think it's going to be a month. That's $210. That's a lot of money. Uh, and so, but you know, we got, the dog's got to be somewhere. We're not going to get rid of him. Even though I did think about opening the gate several times. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so we, we get ready to take the dog. I don't know if she had him yet or not. And, she called and said, the Lord told me that we're going to keep the dog as long as you need us to, no charge. And she didn't know anything yet. So then we tell the story, and she's like, oh, that's why God told me to do that. We had people come into our door that would walk up and give us a $2,000 check and just say, I love you guys, and walk away. We had all kinds of gifts, gift cards, notes, and cards. The first day when we walked away, we painted this light, bright green rectangle on our beige wall in our living room and called it the Journey of Faith. And every card and everything, the gift that people gave us, we put on the wall to remember the good things that God had done. And what happened during that time was, is I felt like that I had kind of been pushed out. I felt like that I had been robbed of my vision. I felt like that I had been done wrong and that things were not going towards me. And it was a tough time dealing with being on staff my entire life since college to not being on staff and people wanting to know what happened and the Lord not being able to 
to, to release us, to tell a lot of people what happened. And, and it was just this crazy time. And sometimes there was days of anger and despair and frustration. But God began to lead us to several different people and teach us different things. And one of the first guys he led us to was a, a guy that we never knew. And some friends lined us up to a guy in Lubbock. And we sat in his living room for two whole days, sitting on his couch, him just pouring into us. And the thing that he taught me the most was uh, spiritual authority. And once the elders had turned their allegiance or their loyalty from you in the other direction, your spiritual authority was gone. That's why God said, don't fight. You were no longer the one to be empowered to have the, the covering over that church. So to leave was the right thing. And you need to be gone and get, get completely gone. And don't, don't be talking back and trying to give them advice. You move. And God began to do all these things in my life. And then we got to a place where some friends of ours bought a conference fee for me to go and said, you know, we want you to go to this conference. And it was a great conference. It's always awesome. I was really excited about it. And I went, man, from the first time, the worship was great. Everything was going really good. This is an awesome place. And the Lord was speaking to me through every session. But the last session on the last night, the pastor that is the pastor of the church got up to do the last session. And he said this, he said, what I was going to preach on tonight is not what the Lord wants me to. He wants me to talk about the root of bitterness. And some of you church leaders from around this world that are in this room tonight need to understand this root of bitterness. And I was like, that's great. I've taught on this before. I'm very well aware of what that is. This is going to be good. It'll help me one day when I preach this message or something. And man, within seconds, the Lord had me under conviction. This session's for you because you are bitter. You think you're owed something. You think people that did some things that you don't agree with owe you an apology. And you're willingly on the edge of your seat saying, yes, I'll forgive you, but you've got to make the first step. And he, about halfway through the message, he made this statement. If you are waiting to give forgiveness for the person that did it wrong to come to you, then God should have never given you forgiveness until you came fully repenting of everything you'd ever done. But it works the opposite. His grace comes to us. And because he first loved us, we understand what it is to love him. And, and in that moment, God said, I want you to forgive everybody that you've ever held anything against. I want you to go back in your mind and think of everyone you've listed as it's done you wrong, and I want you to let it go. And it was as if a thousand pound barbell was on my shoulders. And by the way, I can lift a thousand pounds. It's realistic. Thousand pounds is on my shoulder. And all of a sudden, the Lord just said, I'm taking that. And he threw it behind me, just like a weightlifter in the Olympics, just lets it go. And I didn't even know I was under that pressure until it was gone. And all of a sudden, you stand up a little bit more, your lungs can fill with air, and you feel like, I had no idea that I was so far away from what God wanted. And in that release, God said, I don't want you to hold anything against anybody. I want you to become the aggressor of figuring out how you're going to give forgiveness without doing it in a way that's going to cause them to feel like they need to apologize. The most important thing is in your heart, you got to let it go. We went nine months without a job. And every time I turned around and said, I'm going to get a part-time job, God said, nope. My provision is enough. Trust me, you're not ready to go to work. Crazy thing about 1910 Church Pastor Jason called me on the Thursday I resigned on Monday. We made the first connection because his mother went to my church. And she found out on Tuesday, and she called Jason and said, I hear you're looking for a staff member. This guy's the right one. He probably regrets that. But other than that, it was a great move for us. But the Lord has been so good to teach us so much. 
And what I learned is God's provision every day. When I didn't do it for myself, God did it, and it's all for his glory. I needed to be reformed, deconstructed, and built back up the way he wants it. And even in ministry, things that I was not doing right almost came like a Pharisee. The outward appearance would look good, but the inward work was not as pure. And God did a tremendous work in us in that faithfulness. One of the things I wrote down on this message is, in this fallen world, no one is truly faithful. It's not possible. None of us can love unconditionally, be faithful every single time, every single day, in every single way. It's not possible, but God can. And our provision is from him. Now, the danger here is for me to say, oh, you know, it's always rosy, just trust and he'll pay off. It doesn't always work out that way. Just a few weeks ago, we suffered a very difficult trauma in our life. Some of our very, very best friends in the world have had a son. His name is Brexton. And uh, he was born with some severe brain bleed issues, uh, very premature, and had cerebral palsy, and never could sit up on, him, on his own, and had some you know, normal issues that would go along with that issue. And uh, uh, then he had an accident where he cut off his breathing. His neck got twisted in the bed one night, and uh, they didn't think he was going to make it. Had severe brain damage and was very non-functional in most ways in interaction. For the last four or five years, he's been that way, and I've seen this couple love him and be proud of him and take him to church and to the grocery store and to his school and all these things, and he's impacted thousands of people in his disability. And when he got sick several weeks ago, his lungs began, began to get really, really messed up, and we began to pray faithfully. I mean, the family is already some of the greatest prayer warriors we've ever known, and an entire church of thousands of people are praying for him. Unbelievable prayer support, and yet God did not design for Brexton's lungs to clear up on that day, and instead he took him to heaven. For the first time, Brexton's running. He's jumping. He's laughing. He's looking. He can move his hands. He can control what he does. That is a blessed experience for, the, for those of us that love him. But it's still heart-wrenching on why he's not with us and we don't get to hold him anymore. So the pressure doesn't always let up and God's provision is not always what we think it's going to be, but it's always what he desires for us to impact the kingdom the most. It starts with us. So I have James chapter 1. It's one of my favorite verses. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's the plan. God wants to make us righteous. He wants to make us holy. He wants to make us pure. Galatians chapter 5 is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. He desires for us to be developing all those in us, and they don't happen in our successes. Most of our growth happens in our failures. Most of the things that we grow and learn from is when we're under the stress of not succeeding, and God teaches us amazing lessons. The perseverance is going to develop our maturity Three things that I wrote down that I think we might take away from today. The first one is this, that God is faithful. 
He's true. He's loyal. He has integrity. What he says is what he means. What he means is what he's going to do. And what he's going to do is always for the best, even if we don't see it that way. The second thing may be that you and I may need to know God more in order to increase our understanding of his faithfulness. We need to seek the scriptures to see where he is proving himself in these ways of faithfulness. And the last one is really important in practice. If we're talking this year about emulating Christ, some of us need to become more trustworthy, more faithful, more upright in what we say and what we do. No little white lies, no little manipulations. We had a friend that when his daughter was little and he didn't want want her to watch a movie, instead of putting the VHS tape in, he'd say, honey, the VCR is not working today. It's broken. Maybe tomorrow. And she'd be like, okay. She'd go do something else. Well, one day she's going to grow up and realize that dad wasn't telling the truth. If he's not telling the truth now, what else did he lie to me about? Trustworthiness, faithfulness, consistency. Maybe that's the area that some of us need to work on that we're more faithful. Because if we're emulating Christ, we want them to see the faithfulness of God through our lives and that we'll come through. Let's pray together. Father, as we finish tonight, thank you so much for your faithfulness. I thank you for being faithful to the Kelly family through a very difficult year in 2014. But we ended the year celebrating, rejoicing, and in awe of your goodness instead of despair and anguish. God, we pray that we would be faithful and we would trust your faithfulness. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.